Our Father, we don't just want to hear words. We don't just want a transfer of knowledge today. We want to see who you are as revealed in your Son, the Lord Jesus, as this text is exposed before us. Lord, we believe that in your word are the words of life. And these words are able to make us wise for salvation. They are profitable for us. And so we pray that you would change us. Lord, I ask for clear speech, grace, uh, Lord, a clear mind, that your word might come to bear upon your people today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are continuing our series through the book of Daniel. Uh, we're halfway through chapter 9. It's one of the things we do here at City Reach Marin. We sort of generally preach through books of the Bible and consecutive Bible passages. And the reason that we do that is we believe that God speaks to us through his word as it's given. Now, in the book of Daniel, particularly the second half of the book of Daniel, there's a lot of unusual visions and things that are described which don't make sense to a lot of people. I read in a commentary just this week that these verses are some of the most disputed verses in the whole Bible. So I hope that God will make us clear in our understanding of this text today, and I believe he will. It's important when we study the Bible and believing that God speaks to us through his word that we have a look at the context. That is, we've read a portion of scripture, but we need to think about what comes before it and what comes after it. What comes before it helps us understand what it means. Now, you might recall, you might have been here two weeks ago when we looked at the first part of Daniel chapter 9. And in the first part of Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, it is a prayer of confession. Daniel is praying to God because he realises that his people are in exile in Babylon. This is, so to get our history right, this is a set about 600 BC. This young man, well, formerly a young man, he's now an old man, Daniel, is in his 80s. He's been with his people in exile for about 70 years. And he's realised that God's prophecy has said that their exile will come to an end. And yet it hasn't yet. And in Daniel's prayer, he, in his confession, he acknowledges that the reason that God's people were conquered, the, the, uh, the people of Israel were taken out of their capital city in Jerusalem and taken to another land very far away, into Babylon was, wasn't because they had a, you know, an evil emperor come and destroy their city. It wasn't you know, because there was a change in superpowers and authorities in the land. There were some causes, but the great cause, the first cause, the ultimate cause was the sin of God's people. The sin of God's people. And so Daniel is confessing the sin of God's people and he realises that the big thing, the ultimate thing, that God's people need to see is for his face to be turned back towards them. That, and, and that's a metaphor, that God's blessing would turn back upon his people. He has turned away from them because they have rejected him. He still loves them, but he can't bear to look on their sinful behaviour and endorse it. 
He can't bear to look on what they're doing and say, you are doing the right thing because God does not lie. And because he loves them, he wants them to repent. And so Daniel prays in the first part of Daniel chapter 9, a prayer of confession on behalf of his people, acknowledging that it is their sin. That is the reason why they're in captivity. That is the reason why the state of God's people is despised by the other nations. And we also reflected last time that the church in 21st century Australia is in a similar position. The church in this country is not well received. We're in a decline on the whole. If you look at the census data, which tells us that uh, Christianity is dropping out of the floor almost in terms of numbers. We know anecdotally that more churches are closing than are opening, more pastors are retiring than are starting. We know that the church and Christians are ridiculed regularly. The culture has moved from seeing Christianity as a good thing to an okay thing, now to a bad thing for progression. And yet the ultimate cause of the state of the church is not the culture. It is the sinful practices of God's people. So that's the context. That's the context of Daniel chapter 9 when we get an answer to Daniel's prayer. And the thing that I want to look in particular at with you this morning is how God responds to prayer. How God responds to prayer. You might be a praying person here this morning. You might have never prayed this morning. Wherever you're at, I want you to know how God responds to prayer. What he has to say to those that pray to him. This is applicable to everyone. The first thing we see in our text, the first response of God to prayer is that he declares his love to his people. Have a look at this, verse 22. The angel Gabriel has turned up. He's brought a message to Daniel. This is a An important angel. We don't get many names of angels in the Bible, but we do get the name of uh, the angel Gabriel here. So it's an important messenger. God has given him a message uh, to give to Daniel. And this is what he says. Oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. And I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly Loved. You are greatly loved. Picture this. God in heaven has a messenger. We don't really know what these angels look like in particular, but one of his angels speaks to this angel and says, I've got a message for Daniel. But make sure the first thing that you tell Daniel is that I love him. Make sure the first thing that Daniel knows before you give him any details of the message is that I love him. Isn't that interesting? What does this tell us about God? What does this tell us about God? That he cares about people. That he loves humanity. That the most important thing, the first thing that he wants people to know is that he loves them. Now, we'll get to why he loves them. 
in a little bit. But the first thing he wants people to know is that he loves them. What does this tell us about God? That God is relational. God is relational. I think we get very confused when we think about God these days because we think that God is a transactional being, a bit like karma, if you will. We do things for him and he does things for us. We scratch his back and he scratches ours. We tend to think if we you know, live a good life, make offerings by you know, using our time wisely, perhaps coming to church, perhaps doing good deeds, looking after our family, being a good person, you know, participating in particular traditions in the church. Yeah, it might be that you've been baptised, might be that you've been confirmed, it might be that you know, you've given money, you've taken communion. And we see all these traditions as offerings we make to God, but then we do our part and he must do his, as if he must owe us in some way for the things that we do. We tend to think of God as a transactional being. And yet here we see that when Daniel prays, God says, I love you. Does that show God to be a transactional being? That we do our part and he does his? No, it does not. It shows us that this God is a relational God. He's a relational God. And it also shows us what we really need to know as we pray. I mean, Daniel's very upset. He's very upset at the state of his people. He's very upset at the state of the religion of his people in particular. You know, that they're looked poorly upon. He's very upset about these things. And the first thing that God would say to him is that, I love you. Is that what you expect when you pray? What do you expect to get when you pray? You come with the shopping list. You know, my husband needs to improve. Pray for him. My wife needs to improve, pray for her. My kids need to improve, pray for them. Or if your kids, my parents, you know, need to improve, we'll pray for them. No, I want better grades at school, I'll pray for that. You know, I don't want to be embarrassed, I'll pray for that. You know, I've got relational problems with these people, I'll pray for that. You know, I need more money, we've got money troubles, I'll pray for that. I've got health issues, I'll pray for that. I know people with health issues, I'll pray for them shopping list. Do we expect that God would tell us that he loves us? It's interesting, I still remember when my wife and I first told each other we loved each other. We were dating. I remember the exact place. I was a bit nervous, as you can imagine. It's a big moment when you say to someone that you love them, Feel the butterflies in the stomach. You know, what will they say? There's fear associated with saying those three words, isn't there? There's fear because you don't know what they're going to do. You know, it implies commitment as well. It implies that this relationship is serious, it's going somewhere. Don't say I love you unless you mean it, unless it has depth and substance to it, if you date it. I love you needs to mean something 
And so eventually I sort of worked up the courage and I said it. And yes, it was reciprocated. But that marked a defining point in our relationship. For us, it was, you know, we were interested and keen on each other. But when you say, I love you, this is going somewhere. For us, the next step was, will you marry me? The commitment is implied with an I love you, but it's not quite there yet. Now, in a similar way, when God says, I love you, commitment is implied. He is making a statement which he can back up, but we need to see why. We need to see what is the substance of this love that God has for us in the answer to our prayers. Now, I apologise for those that have heard this illustration before. I wheel it out about once a year, but it's so good. It's so good, I've got to keep using it. Uh, there is a, uh, a woman who graduated from Oxford University in 1915. Her name was Dorothy Lee Sayers. She was one of the first uh, women, women to graduate from Oxford uh, with a degree. And she did, decided to begin her career, her writing career, with detective fiction. Now, the main uh, character in her detective novels was the Lord Peter Whimsey. And this character had become an accomplished detective. But eventually, another character entered the story as a love interest. This woman was, like the writer Dorothy Lee Sayers, a graduate from Oxford University. And she was also, like Dorothy, a writer of detective fiction, would you believe? And her name was Harriet Vane. Now, it didn't take people too long to pick up in the story that Dorothy Lee Sayers was writing herself into the story because she had fallen in love with the character she created, the Lord Peter Whimsey. And in the book, she decided to marry the man that she loved. Now, in the Bible, in the Gospel, it tells us that God so loved the world and the humanity that he created that he wrote himself into the story. He became one of us because he loved us. He came with an ultimate covenant of commitment, one through the death of his son, that he could reconcile a people to himself, that he could win a people who were separated and far from him because of love for himself. This God sees us in our darkness, in our peril, in our difficult days and says, I wrote myself into your story to show us true love that is utterly committed to his people. So the first thing we see in our text as a re God's response to prayer is that he declares his love to us. The second thing that God does in response to our prayers is point us to the work of Christ. Have a look at verse 24. It says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. Now, this verse in particular is one of the most contentious in the Bible because uh, many people are trying to discern, well, what do these 70 weeks 
mean? What do these 70 weeks mean? How do we interpret them? Now, from the best information I can put together, uh, these 70 weeks, and in the Hebrew it actually means 70 sevens, most people would say that's uh, 70 times 7 years. So it's 490 years until these six aspects of a coming transformation in the world would happen. There'll be, seven, there'll be 490 years or 70 times 7 and then there'll be a great transformation in the world that will come. God will deal with sin. God will bring an end to it. God will bring a transformation to his people. He will bring about good. Remember the context. Daniel has been confessing the sins of his people to God and God is saying, I will come personally and deal with it after a set period of time, 490 years, I will come and deal with sin. I will answer your prayer. It may take longer than you think, but I will do something much greater than you even asked for. The Bible tells us that God can do abundantly more than we could ask or imagine. And it's interesting. Daniel's view is fairly narrow as he prays. He asks God, will you restore your relationship to your own people? And God says, I will do it on a cosmic scale. I will do something so great that people won't even believe it if they hear it. And when Jesus came to do these things, people didn't believe it. People didn't believe that God would come in the flesh to deal with the brokenness and the darkness and the evil in the world and in the human heart. But he did. Now, of course, uh, there's a couple of things in this um, particular verse. Uh, one is the timing. So see, 77s. Now, again, there's a lot of dispute about this. Uh, but, and it's difficult because we, when we come to the text, we actually want to read it where it's at and get Daniel's point of view before we come to our point and look backwards. But if you are to try and work out, okay, when does 490 years start? And then when does it end around the work of Christ? Well, in Ezra chapter 7, that is when the uh, king, the Babylonian king Artaxerxes, uh, proclaimed that the temple would be rebuilt. This was about 458 BC. And exactly 490 years later was AD 33 when Jesus was dying on the cross. So that is, I think, a likely fulfilment of that text. That is the time that it took. And there will be six great things that are accomplished at the end of that 490 years. That is, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. So God will do something at the culmination of that years which will bring about a great end to sin and a great transformation for his people. That is what the text tells us. Now, the interesting thing about this is we're often, um, and you know, rightly so sometimes, confused by text because we try and work out 
all the minutiae of the details. And we try and read it, I think, sometimes too much into our current day and age. And we miss the forest for the trees. What is the big thing that God is trying to explain to Daniel and to us? That Jesus is coming. What is the big thing that God wants us to discover as we pray to him? That Jesus has come. And he has done these amazing things that no one has done before and no one will need to do again because he will do them once for all. A lot of the confusion in the Bible comes, I believe, because we uh, major on the minors. That is, we make big things out of small things rather than keeping the big things the big things. And the big thing of the Bible is a person and his name is Jesus. And verse 24 is primarily about the work of Jesus. Now, Jesus has this habit, which interestingly in Daniel's, uh, in the response to Daniel's prayer, Jesus almost interrupts What's going on? You know, Daniel wants things sorted in his own day and age. And God is like, no, someone is coming. Jesus is coming. Daniel doesn't know who Jesus is. He's had a vision of a son of man before. But God is interrupting Daniel's prayers to point him to Jesus. He's interrupting Daniel's prayers to point him to Jesus. And that is what God does. He interrupts the shopping list. He interrupts our concern for our own lives and points us in prayer to Jesus. That's what God wants. In a book uh, I've been reading uh, called Defying Jihad, there's a young woman, uh, her Islamic name is Zahira, grew up in uh, Pakistan and uh, was, uh, grew up in a family who was fairly nominal Muslim, but uh, the family through the father became more and more radicalised by militant uh, Islamic uh, people and uh, she became more and more radicalised. She was taken uh, to a militant uh, Islamic school and she was shown pictures of people uh, participating in jihad, which is holy war against the infidels, the Christians and the Jews. And she was at the point where as an 18-year-old young woman, She was ready to die in jihad and become a suicide bomber to kill Christians. She was a very devout Muslim. She would, instead of praying five times a day, which is the standard practice, she would pray eight times a day. She was highly devout. She would spend hours upon hours. When the prayers would take 10 minutes, she would spend 40. You can do the maths. This young woman was absolutely devout and absolutely committed to her religion and to the end result of it, which was to kill the infidels as the Quran had instructed her to do, to be a part of jihad, because they were taking their faith seriously. And one morning, when she was on the prayer mat, she had a vision. As she was praying to Allah, She had a vision of someone who disturbed her prayers. This man who was white, like nothing she had ever seen before, whiter than could be bleached by any human bleach, 
It was wearing clothes that were dazzling to her eyes. It was walking through a graveyard. And yet she could see that in his path was the path of life. He turned to her. He did not call her Zahira, but called her Esther. And said, Esther, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And then she came out of the vision. She didn't know who it was. She'd never read the Bible. She didn't know what it meant. And yet her life was interrupted in prayer by someone who said, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And it was when she met a Christian and she asked, what does this dream mean? This Christian picked up John's gospel and read out to her, Jesus saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And her life was transformed. She was the only Christian in her family. They took her to stone her to death. And yet God prevailed. And she survived to testify to this day that the God in heaven has come to earth and his name is Jesus Christ. God is in the business of interrupting your prayers to point you to Jesus. That is who you need. He is the why to I love you because he has come. Now our text tells us very specific things, six specific things about what Jesus has done to lift our souls Remember, Daniel was in exile. His life, like he was an old man. He he wasn't going to see this happen in his own lifetime. And yet God was encouraging him to persevere as a man who would shine God's light in a culture that was against him. And for God's people to persevere when difficulty comes, when you are opposed by those outside, that you would continue to live rightly before the Lord your God. There are six specific aspects to what God will do, which we see in the work of Jesus. The first is to finish the transgression. Finish the transgression. We know actually up until this point in history, up until 600 BC, from when Israel was given the law through Moses, the prophet Moses, the great leader of Israel, Moses, Uh, given the law to obey and they made a covenant with God that they would be his people and he would be their God. He gave them the right way to live before him. They had utterly failed. They had utterly failed. They had been in rebellion. The word transgression actually in the Hebrew uh, can also be translated as rebellion. God will finish the rebellion of his people because they had not only missed the mark, as in not obeyed the law, they had utterly disgraced their relationship with God because they had worshipped other gods. They had worshipped other gods. And yet here, Jesus will come to deal with the corporate sins of the rebellion of his people. He will come to finish the transgression. In our day and age, Christian people are just as much sinners as Israel of the Old Testament. When we read the Old Testament, which is very important to do, because we believe in the whole counsel of God, when we read the Old Testament, we, when we see the sins of Israel, we should see ourselves in the mirror. We are just like them. When we don't take up you know, necessarily gods of silver, gold and timber and put them up in our house in the West, 
generally speaking. But we do take up the idols of career, of money, of security, of comfort, and we live for those things as our ultimate rather than living and trusting God. We are idolaters. And yet Jesus came to finish the transgression. He came to pay for it in full. Jesus came for a people who had rebelled against him and in love he came to us that he would save us from our sin, save us from ourselves. Second, Jesus has come to put an end to sin. The Bible tells us that the end or the result of sin, the wages of sin are death. That is why there is death in the world today. And yet in Jesus, we see someone who rose from the dead, who said, on the third day, I will rise. The Son of Man will rise again. He had witnesses of him. People who knew him best saw him. They saw the wounds, the scars in his hands and in his side, and they believed. Up to 500 people saw Jesus at one time, the resurrected Jesus. He has come to put an end to sin because he has conquered death. 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it this way. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus has come to put an end to sin, to deal with it personally. Notice in the text that God has spoken specifically to an angel, a particular angel, Gabriel, to give a particular message to Daniel. He's very intent that Daniel knows that, that God is personally interested in him. For you are greatly loved, we see. And yet the culmination of this is that God is personally interested in humanity. He will come to put an end to sin with his own hands and with his own blood. Thirdly, it says he will atone for iniquity. When I was in the army uh, at boot camp, we had, they doled out different jobs that you had to do in the barracks, and I got the job of cleaning the toilets. And I tell you, when you got 40 young men and women uh, in close quarters together, those toilets got pretty messy. And I did not enjoy it, but I cleaned them and I learned how to clean a toilet. My wife can tell you our toilets are generally quite clean. But it was not a good job and I did not put my hand up for it. And yet you can imagine the worst job in all of human history, the worst job in all of human history is someone who would put up their hand to pay for sin. Because what did that mean? You know, the Bible tells us Jesus came to atone for sin, to atone for iniquity. What does that really mean? Of course, we know that the logical end of being sinners is death. And if we're separated from God, it's eternal death, eternal separation from God in a place called hell. So there is a logical consequence for our sins. And Jesus came, it says, to take the sins of the world upon himself so Jesus is personally taking the consequence of sin for millions upon millions of people. Think about that. 
And the consequence is separation from God. Jesus on the cross cried out these famous words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was experiencing separation from God. But I want to take it further and tell you that the consequence for sin is not just some separation from God, but eternal separation from God. And so for Jesus, in a moment of time, only because his shoulders were broad enough to handle it, because he is both God and man, took an eternal weight of separation from God in a moment of time. An eternal weight of separation from God in a moment of time did he take upon himself. The worst job ever conceived. And he said, here I am, send me. We're told in Isaiah 53 what he did. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What does God want you to know as you pray? That your sins have been laid upon Jesus. That's what he wants you to know. Fourthly, to bring about everlasting righteousness. To bring about everlasting righteousness. A big question which has been asked in every religion is how can humans relate to God? There's different answers. Almost every religion will tell you you have to do good things. You have to live a good life. You have to follow the law. And if you obey the law, you do enough good things, then God might accept you. He might. You have no guarantee, but he might accept you. And so you work hard if you want to be accepted by God. And yet the Christian Bible, the good news of Jesus Christ, tells us that God himself came as a perfect sacrifice to sin. What does that mean? That means that God knows humans better than we know ourselves. He knows that our motivations, even for doing the right things, can be very wrong. So you can be a very good person and a very evil person at the same time. Why? Because sin is against God. You can be doing things for your own sake, not for God's. And so even the good people can be doing things with evil intent. And yet God, knowing what humanity is like, knowing exactly what we're like, came to fulfill what humanity was supposed to be. People who represented God to the nations, people who lived a right life before him. Jesus lived a perfect life. And so the Father would accept him as the Son. Now, one of the powerful things is that when you become a Christian, Two things take place as a transfer. There is an exchange. Two things take place. Jesus takes our sin. He receives it. He's paid for it, of course, in uh, you know, 2,000 years ago on the cross. But he receives our sin on himself. He pays for it. You are cleansed. You are made a new creature in God's sight. God will accept you. But what happens if you sin again? What happens? You're converted and you sin the next day and 
let's be honest. Who hasn't sinned after they've been converted? Of course, we do every day. We don't even realise it half the time. We're still sinners. So then how can we still be accepted by God? And the answer is that the righteousness of Jesus, the right standing that Jesus has with the Father has been given to us. So the exchange is this. Our sin goes to Jesus and he pays for it fully. It is extinguished, fully paid for. And Jesus' right standing with God the Father is given to us. That is how we can be called children of God. The only reason that God can look on you and see child, beloved one, is because you have the righteousness of Jesus if you have believed in him. And that is an everlasting righteousness. He's given that to his people and Jesus will rule and reign for all eternity over his people. The Bible tells us in Matthew 28, he is seated at the right hand of the Father with all authority in heaven and earth that has been handed over to him. And so he rules and he reigns now. Fulfilling this text. Number five, Jesus has come to seal both vision and prophet. What does that mean? Well, we actually talk about the Bible as a closed book. That is, we don't have anything more to add to it. There's 66 books in the Bible, they're split into an Old and a New Testament. And we believe that this is the whole counsel of God, that it is sealed. There's no more prophets, capital P, prophets to come to tell us more. That is why we disagree with Islam that says there was another prophet to come. We say, no, Jesus is the final prophet. We disagree with any other teaching that says there's more books to the Bible. We say, no, we have a closed canon. It is complete. We have everything here pertaining to life and righteousness. Now, Let me be really frank with you. If someone tells you that there's extra books to the Bible, be wary. It is not helpful for you to go digging in those wells for impure water when you have the clear good stuff here. Many well-intentioned people have been led far astray when they have looked intently for something new, a new prophetic vision, something new. We do not need it because Jesus has come to seal both Vision and prophet. Finally, sixthly, that's the Chinese symbol for six. I can do it easily on one hand rather than doing six there. Um, Jesus has come to anoint a most holy place. Anoint a most holy place. What does this say? That at one time, in one place in history, all of these things will happen. Every one. All of these things will happen at one place and at one time in history in AD 33. In history, in AD 33, a man who was in his mid-30s was taken out of the city of Jerusalem carrying a cross, bloodied and beaten. He had, had to get someone called Simon of Cyrene to help him take it. They marched up to a mount called Golgotha, place of the skull. They dropped the cross into a hole prepared for it. They attached this man to a cross with nails. And this man was Jesus. 
and it became a most holy place because his blood was spilled there. I like um, fantasy science fiction books and I was reading uh, last year a series called The Final Empire. It's by an author called Brandon Sanderson. And the main character, his name is Kelsia, and he leads a small gang of rebels against the evil Lord Ruler and his evil empire. Uh, there's another lead character who's a young member of Kelsia's gang, and it is a young woman called Vin. Now, this Kelsia, this hero figure, this chief rebel against the evil Lord Ruler, becomes a father figure to the young woman, Vin. And she starts to love him as the father that she never had. Everyone in Vin's life has let her down. And so she makes this Kelsey a promise that he will never let her down and bring an end to the Lord Ruler and his evil empire because everyone, in her, everyone else in her life has failed or betrayed her. Now against all odds, against all odds, this small group of rebels led by the hero Kelsia sparks a revolution. But in order to save his people, the hero Kelsia enters hand-to-hand combat against the Lord Ruler himself and is killed in the process and seemingly fails. And Vin is absolutely devastated that her leader, her father figure, has let her down by his death. And yet it is in the death of Kelsia that the rebellion is granted life. Like the dawn of a new day, the secret plan of Kelsia was that by laying down his own life, it would breathe life into the rebellion, into a people who had been betrayed and failed by its leaders. It was in seeing an act of pure love, of laying down his life for his people, in seeing a leader who could do that selflessly, that the people would rise up and conquer the Lord Ruler themselves. And so it was in the end that this Kelsia kept his promise. And we have someone who when everything seemed against him, when the world was in rebellion, when darkness had its day, and when evil came upon the land in a physical darkness, and the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, was laid upon those two pieces of timber and his life was draining from him. His very life was becoming extinguished. Was at that very point, was at that very point that he would win his great victory. It is the ultimate moment, the ultimate inverse moment of history through death would come life. And so it did. Because on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. So the first thing that God wants to do when you pray is to tell you that he loves you. The second thing is to show you why and point you to the work of Christ. He wants to interrupt the shopping list. He wants to interrupt what else is going on in your life and show you that what he has done, he has done for you. Because when that gets into your heart, it changes you. It transforms you. And so the last thing is he wants you to live in light of it. He wants to change you in prayer. Often we pray and what we want in prayer is for our circumstances to change. 
I want my health problems to go away. I want family members to be reconciled. I want my hurts, my bad memories to go away. I want love. I want a relationship with someone who won't let me down. We want our circumstances. We want things. And yet what God wants to do in prayer is to change you. Blaise Pascal was a 17th century mathematician and scientist. His inventions included the hydraulic press and the syringe. And while he was a teenager, would you believe this? He started to work on what would become the first mechanical calculator. After his father fell and broke his hip in 1646, Pascal was confronted by the witness of two Christian doctors who were treating his father, and soon Pascal became a Christian. But his Christian life was lacklustre. He wasn't particularly compelled by the faith, though he believed it. He had a mental knowledge, but his heart had not changed his life. He could say it had some influence, but he could by no means call Christianity his driving force. But in 1654, something happened to Pascal that transformed him from an apathetic Christian to a man who was filled with the Holy Spirit, blazing for God in his whole life. But no one knew what had happened to him. It was like one day he was apathetic and the next he was changed. What happened? Pascal, as it turns out, had a chronic illness that plagued him most of his adult life and had an untimely death at the age of 39. After his funeral service, a servant accidentally discovered a note from Pascal's personal journal that he had sewn into his coat to keep with him in a secret compartment at all times. This was a journal note recorded on the 23rd of November, 1654, between 10.30pm and 12.30am the next day. And it writes, Fire! God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace, God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God, your God will be my God. Forgetfulness of the world and of everything except God. He is only found by the ways taught in the gospel. Grandeur of the human soul. Righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. Joy, joy, tears of joy. And it goes on. It was in prayer. At 10.30 at night, that a genius who was apathetic about his Christianity, his soul, was changed. He saw Jesus and he was moved to be a new man. People, you know, atheist philosophers said that was the day that his intelligence died. But we know that it was the day that he came alive. And so if there's one thing, if there's one thing I want you to learn this morning, it is this, God's purpose 
in answering your prayers is to change you by revealing that he loves you because of what Jesus has done, that you would live as a changed person the rest of your life. Like this example in Blaise Pascal. The love of God is not just to be known, it's to be lived in experience, like a fire welling up in your life. Of course, the result of all this And I suppose one of the great burdens of Daniel was that his people were apathetic still, even though they were in Babylon, even though they were under the judgment of God, they still hadn't changed their hearts. Nothing had really happened. And I suppose in the same way, the great burden of our time is that Christians are a bit apathetic. They don't really care that. And you, when, God, when you see what God wants in your prayers and you pray in alignment with the will of God, your soul will catch fire. You become someone like Isaiah, who when he saw the glory of God and the atonement of God touched him, he said, here I am, send me. And let that be for you and I this morning. Let me pray. Our Father, we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you that in 77s you came and you revealed the great work of Jesus, that you would pay for sin once for all, that you would atone for iniquity of your own blood. Invade our prayers. Change our lives. May your fire come upon us that we will be cleansed of a weak conscience and an apathetic heart and be renewed with love for you, for you first loved us, our great and glorious Father and your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Lawson. Let's hope